the hospitals like things just the way they are. It gives them almost, you know, complete immunity for any peer review, good faith or bad faith that they conduct against a physician. And they like things that way. So the solution that I've come up with and I've talked about in a number of talks I've presented is I, I think that the physicians themselves need to stand up for ethical conduct. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, so this is a follow-up of the previous episode uh, where we had Dr. Skaki and Huntoon and, um, you know, Deb Gordon on the show. It, it was a medical legal episode, and this is a follow-up to that episode. And, um, you know, I have with me Dr. Huntoon again for this um, episode. And, uh, you know, for those of you who do not know Dr. Huntoon from the previous episode, um, he's a former president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. It's the only national organization um, which is doing a substantial amount of work, actually, to fight Shampi Review. And uh, we're going to do a deep dive on some of the technical aspects of of the peer review process and of sham peer reviews uh, that have afflicted several physicians and surgeons nationally. And um, I wanted to take this opportunity to have Dr. Huntoon back on the show to ask him some of the technical terms around this process, because, you know, as we uncovered during our previous episode, so many of us are completely unfamiliar with the technicalities of the, of the processes and the procedures and our rights. And it's extremely important to be aware of our rights and to be aware of the processes um, so that we can make informed decisions and, and informed actions. Um, so with that introduction, I, I should also say Dr. Huntoon remains the editor-in-chief of the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons. And if you've not followed that journal, please do. You'll find incredible literature and articles written by Dr. Huntoon himself on different aspects that we're going to talk about in the show today. So with that introduction, Dr. Huntoon, welcome back on the show, and thank you so much for doing this for us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to try and help educate physicians about this important topic. Absolutely. So I'm just going to jump right in because, you know, we have um, some of these technicalities to cover. Um, so I, you know, I want to dive right in. Um my first question is, uh, you know, how can a sham peer review, you know, be performed on competent clinicians? I mean, is that even an occurrence? And, uh, you know, that's the first question that comes to mind when, you know, we sort of scratch the surface of, of this phenomenon, for lack of a better word, uh, in our last episode. So just a couple of preliminary things. So everybody's on the same page. What we're talking about today is sham peer review, and that's peer review that's done in bad faith. And I'm not proposing that all peer review is bad faith uh, peer review. Uh, peer review done in good faith, uh, we support. And good faith peer review should be collegial, educational, fair, done for the purpose of improving quality care and protecting patients and it should incorporate substantive due process for the accused physician. So having said that, I want to provide you with the published definition of sham peer review, which is an adverse action taken in bad faith by a professional review body for some purpose other than 
the furtherance of quality health care and that is disguised to look like legitimate peer review. So it's abuse of the peer review process. And you ask, well, can sham peer review be performed on competent clinical physicians? And the answer is yes. Sham peer review has ruined the careers of many competent physicians. And the reason that sham peer review, you know, has been used effectively by hospitals that use it is because of the very strong immunity provided to hospitals and peer reviewers under the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act of 1986, which grants nearly absolute immunity to peer reviewers and hospitals. Um, so, you know, tell us more about the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act of 1986 and what led the legislators to pass an act like the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act, which you know, again, like you said early on, as a preamble to this question, you know, we completely support good faith peer review and good faith, good faith peer review is, is crucial, is important, is imminent, um, uh, you know, for uh, patient safety and for quality healthcare. Um, but to, to then abuse the system, so to say, or to abuse this, this um, legislation, uh, to come up with something like bad bad faith peer review, how did did the legislators not think of this when they were coming up with this law? Well, that's a very excellent question. Uh, the history of the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act, which was passed in 1986, has to do with a case called Patrick v. Burgett, and this was a case out of Astoria, Oregon. And it was a sham peer review. And it was basically a proven case of sham peer review. And the doctor sued uh, for antitrust violation. That's Dr. Patrick. And it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I will tell you that AAPS, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, filed an amicus brief supporting Dr. Patrick at the U.S. Supreme Court while another major medical association filed an amicus brief on the side of those who performed the sham peer review. To make a long story short, Dr. Patrick prevailed and got treble damages, as uh, you can get under uh, antitrust violations. And uh, so that was the the case that led to the passage of HICWA. The AMA got all upset and said this is going to chill peer review, if doctors can sue hospitals that, that do this sort of thing. But again, remember, it was a sham peer review that they did on Dr. Patrick. So uh, legislators uh, looked at this and the law that they came up with and was passed, Healthcare Quality Improvement Act, some refer to this as HICWA, uh, basically, and, and hold on to your seats, it considers accused physicians to be guilty of the charges unless and until they can prove their innocence by a preponderance of the evidence. And that sort of turns, uh, you know, American justice on its head, where we're used to, you know, hearing you're innocent until proven guilty. If you're an accused physician, you are guilty unless you can prove your innocence and is your burden to prove the innocence. Uh, and and that's uh, that's the tragic history of HICWA. 
Wow, it's uh, it certainly is tragic, um, you know, because it's uh, like you said, it's innocent um, until proven guilty otherwise. And, um, you know, it's it's turned on its head, you know, as you appropriately mentioned. So let me ask you this. What are the steps um, that a physician can take? Because, um, you know, the physician who is subjected to shampoo review knows that that particular physician has been subjected to shampoo review. So what are the steps that uh, that particular physician can take to mitigate the rapidity of the train once it has left the station? Yes, another good question. And uh, I've written an article on this called Shampoo Review, Disaster Preparedness and Defense. And, and by the way, all of these articles are available f- to download free of charge, no usernames or passwords or anything like this. All you have to do is go to the uh AAPS website, which is aapsonline.org, and simply search my name, Lawrence Huntoon, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E-H-U-N-T-O-O-N, and it will take you directly to all the articles that have been published on this, as well as video presentations. But to answer your question, uh, the, the, the best approach is to try and have a disaster preparedness plan ready ahead of time. But most physicians don't do that. And the reason is most physicians consider themselves to be competent, good physicians and think that this will never happen to them because they are competent, good physicians. And that's a naive view and certainly not true. But once you are attacked, uh, there are are things you need to do, you know, uh, fairly quickly. And in the article, I go through these things, you know, uh, step by step basis. But obviously, one of the first things you need to do is get a knowledgeable attorney on board as quickly as possible so that your rights can be uh, protected. Excellent. And, you know, I I would recommend uh, the listeners of this this show to actually download the article. It's it's very informative um, and it sort of goes over the step-by-step process of what one can do to one, you know, safeguard uh, one's own one's own entity and identity and and then it talks about rights and then goes on to you know some of the offensive measures that you know one can take uh, you know if need be and you know you know both Dr. Hanjun and myself pray that none of us are ever in that situation or scenario um, which you know I think is is now a, a good segue we're talking about offense and we're talking about some of the processes which surround this 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 process um, uh, some some technical terms, Dr. Huntoon, and you know I think it'll be helpful for the listenership to understand more from you about the about the meaning of these terms, uh, because you know again a lot of the physicians aren't even aware that these uh, terminologies exist, that these processes exist, or that these, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, tactics you know on on part of the hospitals exist. Uh, and I'm I'm going to um, you know explain myself here in in a little bit. But um, my first question is about uh, an investigation. When a physician is under investigation, what does that mean? Well, an investigation is typically defined in your medical staff bylaws. Interestingly, the term investigation is not defined specifically in the National Practitioner Data Bank Guidebook. And that has caused some issues in the past. But an investigation uh, is basically uh, a 
formal look into the physician's uh, practice. And again, it is covered and is under the medical staff bylaws as to how that occurs. The other thing I want to just add about investigations is according to the National Practitioner Data Bank Guidebook, a hospital does not have to inform the physician when an investigation is underway. So in some cases, you know, a hospital has sent out records to an external reviewer and they don't even tell the physician. The issue uh, then can happen where if the physician perceives that something bad is going on, he decides to resign from the hospital and get out of there. If you resign while there's an open investigation, you will be reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank and your career will either be ruined or over. They don't have to tell you. They can do a secret investigation. You know nothing about it. But if you resign while that investigation is ongoing, it can ruin or end your career. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 kind of saddening to, to hear that, you know, that physicians um, really have nothing to uh, to safeguard themselves against, you know, this this menace and, you know, just the the unopposed power of um you know, hospitals and institutions is, and, you know, I'm, again, you know, we're, we're not, uh, you know, for the listenership or for the audience, we're not questioning the sanctity of, of a good peer review. Uh, you know, this is, um, you know, a bad faith peer review, then, you know, then if someone decides to, uh, you know, level up and, and just um, do uh, a formal investigation secretively, um, <clears throat> there's, is, is there, is there anything that physicians can at all? I mean, is there a, a formal appeals process? Is there is there something? Is there anything? Well, there is no appeal to an investigation. An investigation is just that. It's looking into the facts and the evidence and whether or not a physician provided safe care and care within the standard of care. And there is no appeal to that. It's uh, And investigations can arise in, in various different ways. Um, which brings me to my next question of, you know, what is, uh, so two terms here, one is FPPE and then the other one is OPPE. Um, if you can go over those terms uh, for us and for the listenership, I think that'll be very helpful. Sure. Uh, these were terms brought to us by the Joint Commission in 2007. And by the way, uh, one of the founders of the Joint Commission is the American Hospital Association. So the hospitals kind of like things, you know, that that favor the hospital and disfavor the uh, physician. But these were two terms, OPPE and FPPE, uh, which the Joint Commission introduced in 2007 as tools to help hospitals make privileging decisions. So just briefly, the OPPP is an ongoing professional practice evaluation, and it's a screening tool to evaluate you know, basically all practitioners in the hospital. So the key thing to note there is it's not a review that's focused on an individual physician. So, for example, in your hospital, they likely have procedures for pulling certain charts, uh, deaths within 24 hours of admission, unexpected deaths, unexpected complications, and, and whatever. And that is a review that to which all physicians at the hospital are subject to. The F 
PPE is a focused professional practice evaluation. And the thing to note there is it is focused on individual uh, physicians. And it's, it's something that can arise if something is discovered in the OPPE process, but it sometimes arises from simply, uh, simply complaints that someone may have filed uh, against the uh, physician. And I think the key thing to recognize for your listeners is that an FPPE often functions like a star chamber proceeding. If you're not familiar with that term star chamber, this was an English court at the palace in late 15th century and continued into the mid 17th century. And it was a room with stars on the ceiling, which is why it's called star chamber, where, you know, the the elite uh, sat in a room, closed doors, and did not get the accused person in front of them to question or tell his side of the story. And they decided behind closed doors what punishment they were going to uh, inflict on the person who came before them. So that's often how these FPPEs are initiated. And I will tell you that there is no appeal to an FPPE. They can force you to do certain things under the FPPE and there is no appeal. And then, uh, you know, I should, I should ask you this. So anytime anyone is under FPPE, that is different from being under an investigation, right? Well, the, the FPPE is a focused professional practice of evaluation. So it's certainly a lot of overlap there between that and an investigation. And in fact, it may have been an investigation that sort of morphed into the FPPE. Mm-hmm. Um, is FPPE, so anytime anyone is under FPPE, is that reportable to the National Practitioner Data Bank? Great question. Not all FPPEs are reportable. In fact, most are not. So an FPPE, what are some examples? They may want the physician to obtain certain coursework, uh, pass certain coursework. They may decide that they need to monitor the physician's uh, uh, procedures for a period of time, three or six months. And, and those FPPEs are not reportable to the data bank. However, if an FPPE involves a proctorship, What's a proctorship? That means another physician who is qualified needs to be in the same room with you when you're performing surgery or a procedure, for instance, and they need to give their approval for the procedure to proceed. That constitutes a restriction on the physician's privileges. And again, restrictions on the physician's privileges can certainly be reportable to the data bank. Um, and so, no, th- this is, um, you know, an, an excellent point and, and a great uh, discriminatory point, I would say, between, um, you know, FPPE, which may or may not be reportable to the to the National Practitioner Data Bank. Um, I did, you know, you did mention um, something else in the, in the previous episode, and that was abeyance. And um, I, I wanted to sort of ask you this question uh, and understand that term more from you. Because um, you know, I'm I'm not familiar as to I understand that term at all. You know, if you know, if I mean, it's 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 a new term for me, um, as I'm, I'm sure it will be for many uh, who are on the show listening. 
So what is what is an abeyance and is it a, a tactic or is it a tool that is utilized by hospitals and healthcare systems? If you can just share that with us, that'll be very helpful for the audience. Yes, well, hospitals introduced the concept of voluntary abeyance years ago, and they have been using it as an alternative to a summary suspension ever since. And so what happens is in a voluntary abeyance, the physician is asked to sign an agreement whereby he agrees not to practice in the hospital or not to perform a certain procedure or surgery until an investigation can be completed. The thing to know about a voluntary abeyance is it is almost never voluntary because it is always presented with an or else. The physician is typically told that if he does not agree to the voluntary abeyance, a summary suspension will immediately be imposed. And so it's done under threat and, and coercion. And in some cases that I've seen recently, the, the physician uh, meets with these hospital leaders and is, is given this option of a voluntary abeyance. And he is told he must decide on the spot whether or not to sign the voluntary agreement during this meeting. And he will not be allowed to consult with his attorney prior to making his decision. That, to me, is evidence of bad faith in conducting the peer review when you're not allowed to even consult with your attorney before signing an, import, an important agreement like this. And the data bank, you know, for since January of 2010 has made it clear that a voluntary abeyance carries the same uh, significance as a summary suspension. So once a voluntary abeyance is in place for more than 30 days, it's reportable to the National Practitioner Data Bank and can ruin or end your career. And a lot of uh, hospitals tell physicians, oh, look, it's only voluntary. It won't hurt you. It won't be reportable to the data bank. They will outright lie to the physician to more or less coerce the physician to sign the voluntary abeyance. And when the 30-day mark hits, the doctor finds out it's reported to the data bank. Mm, um, I mean, in terms of, um, you know, my, which, I mean, this is, this is all great uh, information and um, it, it, it begs the question as to, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's an obvious question as to how, um, you know, physicians should get educated on hospital bylaws and peer review processes. And you briefly touched upon this during our, our previous episode, but, you know, my here's what I'm going to ask you is, you know, my, my first question is why should physicians get educated in these processes? And, you know, after we've discussed all these fine points, you know, it's um, it, it shouldn't be hard to convince any physician to get educated on these on these processes. But but the bigger question is, how should physicians get educated on hospital bylaws and, and peer review processes? Yeah. So the first thing I want to remind physicians that are listening is I'm not an attorney. I don't give legal advice or legal opinions, but it's very important for physicians to read their medical staff bylaws, particularly the sections involving corrective action and summary suspension. The medical staff bylaws are what govern uh, things in the hospital. And that is where your due process rights uh, are set out in the uh, in in the hospital, and so it's important to read them. I know a lot of physicians don't want to look at things like that. It's it's picky medical legal stuff. I don't want to deal with that, but you don't want to wait 
until you know it it's hit you personally and then try and play catch up and read the medical staff bylaws and see what your rights are you really should look at those and have an idea uh, of what due process rights you're entitled to uh, under the under the bylaws and i will say that the medical staff bylaws in most states constitute a contract between the hospital board of directors and physicians on medical staffs in some states it's still not considered a contract which can be problematic because then some hospitals argue well too bad we violated the bylaws but since it's not a contract we don't have to follow them yeah and then you know my my second question um in that two question segment was how should physicians get educated on peer review processes i mean you know this obviously is an effort uh you know on on the part of parallax and and yourself and aaps and even the previous episode with dr kaki to sort of motivate physicians to get educated on you know the the concept of peer review process and you know the the due processes which are in place so that they are in familiar territory but you know what is some of what are some of the other resources other than aaps obviously that physicians may use to get educated on these these concepts well it's pretty much aaps at this point uh you know the ama put out a board of trustees report back in 2008 where they essentially said sham peer review doesn't exist and they were in about 4 years later they sort of announced quietly at an interim meeting in chicago that well we will start maybe providing uh information to physicians who've been affected by sham peer review well if it doesn't exist why would you pr- be providing information to physicians who've been affected by sham peer review and they don't have nearly the uh information and knowledge and expertise that aaps has in this area and again the the best way to educate yourself uh you know i've written numerous articles on on this a lot of them are short maybe five or six pages at most and they're again downloadable free of charge from the aaps website and uh that's the best way i think and there's videos on there too if you don't want to read the articles there's videos that cover some of the same topics and and one of them is tactics characteristic of sham peer review i've done a number of uh articles on that and updated them physicians need to recognize the tactics that are being used against them that are characteristic of sham peer review and this is the best source to go through and learn about those various tactics yeah i mean you you're vastly experienced i mean you're you're a national um you know expert uh, on this topic uh, would you be kind to share some of the tactics that you've written about and you've seen and you've probably testified against for the audience uh sure and there's there's a whole bunch of them. that was the uh topic of a, of an entire talk that i gave which is also posted on the aps website but certainly one of the uh common ones is the ambush tactic and secret investigations so the ambush tactic uh frequently what happens is the accused physician is invited to what's called an informal friendly meeting with the chief of staff and maybe the hospital administration and i will tell you that all the people except for the accused physician uh who will be at that meeting know exactly what it's about all the details 
they typically do not share the details about what the meeting is about with the accused physician. They tell the physician, well, look, we will tell you more about it when we get in the meeting. Well, that's an ambush. The physician doesn't have time to prepare if they're looking at specific cases to prepare to discuss them. And so when the physician doesn't have time to prepare, he kind of fumbles around trying to remember the case or procedure, whatever it was, and fumbling around makes the physician look guilty. He's not defending himself very well. So that's the ambush uh, tactic. Uh, then there's the tactic of depriving the accused physician of charts, complaints, incident reports needed to defend himself. That's a pretty blatant uh, violation of due process and fundamental fairness. The hospital just doesn't give you the specific charts you need to prepare, to prepare your defense. Then the medical staff bylaws in a lot of uh, in a lot of hospitals sort of parallel HICWA in that they state in the bylaws that basically the physician is presumed guilty prior to the peer review hearing and the burden is placed on the physician to prove his innocence. There's the numerator without denominator tactic, which is something that is used for physicians who perform surgery or procedures. They will cite the numerator. Oh, look, he's had five complications. But you sort of got to know the denominator, don't you, to be able to evaluate, is this out of the norm or within acceptable range? So if the doctor performs 10 cases and five of them he has complications, that's a 50% complication rate. But what if he performs 5,000 of those procedures and have has five complications? Very different uh, implication there, isn't it? But so they just cite the numerator. Oh, look, he had five terrible complications. Then there's misrepresentation of the standard of care. Some hospitals will hire external experts and the external experts will basically say, well, the surgeon or cardiologist didn't do things my way. My way is the best way. And so he's practicing below the standard of care. That's misrepresentation of the standard of care. We know that uh, there are perfectly legitimate different ways to treat and approach certain patients and conditions uh, that are perfectly legitimate. And just citing one side as this is the best and standard of care approach is, is not appropriate. And then we just we see false and trumped up charges. I'm increasingly seeing charges that are just completely false and fabricated that are proven to be false and fabricated yet the uh, the hospital goes forward with them. Then there's abuse of the disruptive physician label. That's a real common one. When they can't get the physician on some competency issue, they will often shift the prosecutorial theory to something more subjective like disruptive physician. And there's a whole bunch more. I mean, there's like, <laughs> I got about 30 of them uh, listed, but again, you can go to those uh, articles and see what uh, e each of them are. Yeah, no, I, you know, excellent, um, excellent answer. And, you know, thank, thank you for going over some of these tactics. And, you know, again, for the listenership, you know, if you are interested um, in this topic, you know, you know, we certainly hope that you're not afflicted by this menace. But if you're interested in this topic and want to learn more, or if you know of a colleague who's been afflicted and want to direct him or her, uh, you know, the right way, then certainly direct them to the AAPS website. And some of the terrific articles that Dr. Hantun has written himself, which are, you know, again, 
um, very easy to read. Uh, they are concise and and they are very well detailed and very well, ex- you know, the, the explanations are terrific. And you'll sort of understand the lay of the land and the and the um, and and the processes that are in place, um, you know, so that you can, you know, just completely arm yourself well when you are trying to fight, uh, you know, this occurrence, uh, you know, in your professional in your professional life, um, Doctor Huntoon, which which does bring me to to the next question, and that is, um, and maybe I'll um, I'll sort of end. Uh, the podcast by asking you a little bit more about AAPS and how, you know, the listenership at Parallax can get involved. But uh, before that, you know, my first question, you know, my, my next question actually is how can we usher in change and change the landscape so that our peers, our colleagues don't get afflicted by this? You know, we sort of broached this discussion in the previous episode with Dr. Kaki and with, with Deb Gordon that, you know, this has led to burnout, quiet quitting, um, the great resignation. Uh, physician suicide, what have you, how can we usher in change and how can we change this landscape for the better? I've thought a lot about this over the years, and sometimes physicians think, oh, all we need to do is lobby our legislators in Congress and show them the uh, the inherent violations of due process and fundamental fairness built into the HICWA law. Surely they'll see that and change it. The reality is lobbying Congress to, you know, repeal HICWA or remedy it uh, is not going to be effective. The reason being is the hospital association is a very, very powerful uh, association that donates a lot of money to Congress. Physicians, on the other hand, generally don't donate that much money. Uh, to Congress uh, representatives. And the hospitals like things just the way they are. It gives them almost, you know, complete immunity for any peer review, good faith or bad faith that they conduct against a physician. And they like things that way. So the solution that I've come up with and I've talked about in a number of talks I've presented is I, I think that the physicians themselves need to stand up for ethical conduct. It is unethical to perform a bad faith peer review on a colleague. And, you know, the, the Amish sort of have a solution to this, which, which may be a good solution. If uh, people in the Amish community don't abide by the rules of the community, they're shunned. And I think that the same type of thing should apply in the physician community. We ought not deal with physicians who participate participated in sham peer review. It's an unethical act that they've committed and you just ought to have no dealings with them. Yeah. Are, um, you know, are we there yet is, is, is the next question. You know, it's, it's the next huge, I mean, it's the next intuitive obvious question. Are we there yet? Well, we're not there yet. And again, you have to realize uh, vast majority of physicians don't really even know about sham peer review, or if they know about it, they think it's never going to affect me. I mean, I've published hundreds of articles. I'm a good physician. I'm at the top of my uh, uh, specialty. This would never happen to me, but it does. So there's so many physicians out there that think that they don't want to get involved in anything having to do with sham peer review because it's not going to personally affect them, or they view it as not ever going to personally affect them. 
And so until we overcome that with uh, education and telling some of these uh, really horrible stories, uh, you know, I don't think that will change quickly. And then, Dr. Hantun, you know, just um, final remarks, uh, you know, maybe the final question as we as we end this podcast. And, you know, thanks again for your depth of knowledge and for your mission and for your path that you've taken in your life to help colleagues and physicians and to to become the national expert that you've become and to 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 so strongly voice be be a voice for aaps to represent aaps and to write all these incredibly informative articles which uh, you know are so helpful uh, for anyone you know who's interested uh, in the topic who you know unfortunately has been afflicted by the process and wants to usher in change you know i i truly truly thank you for your service uh, to your colleagues. Um, I mean, you're, you know, may, may, may the force be with you and, and, and just innumerable blessings are away. But um, my, my final question to you is if you can, um, you know, tell the, tell the listenership more about uh, AAPS and its mission and how can, well, first of all, why should they get involved and then how should they get involved? Well, I think a reason to get involved in AAPS is you will help support the work that we're doing. And I should mention that uh, some of the free membership benefits available to our members are two important ones. Number one, the AAPS Free Limited Legal Consultation Service, which is a consultation with the nation's top attorney in Shampoo Review Matters. And the other thing is uh, members get free access to the AAPS Shampoo Review Hotline, where they can receive, you know, important information. I run the hotline on a pro bono basis as a membership benefit. So uh, the AAPS, which is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, was established in 1943 with the main mission to support the patient-doctor relationship. And, and that's it. Uh, our motto is omnia pro agrado, which in Latin means everything for the patient. So uh, again, if you want to get involved in supporting this important work that we do and have access to things like the AAPS Free Limited Legal Consultation Service, the AAPS Shampoo Review Hotline, uh, you can uh, go to the AAPS website aapsonline.org and uh, and look up some of these articles and join and support the work we do. Excellent. Um, thanks again, Dr. Huntoon, for your time and, um, you know, just incredible information. Any closing remarks uh, for the listenership, for the, for the show, for Parallax? Other than I think uh, education is key. The more you know, the better off you are. And that applies to... Uh, you know, a lot of things in medicine, it applies to peer review and peer review procedures as well. And and thank you for the opportunity to help uh, provide this information. Oh, no, you know, absolutely my pleasure. Uh, thanks again, you know, for joining us. And, you know, we'll be back with another guest um, in, in the next episode of Parallax. If you, you know, do listen to this episode and if you have feedback, do share it with us. We, we read feedback uh, very carefully. Uh, do rate us and review us on various podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify, among others, you know, Google Play, certainly, uh, or even, you know, Audible now. And, um, you know, until um, next uh, Monday, um, everyone, thanks again for listening and, and take care. 
We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.